You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. If you have been paying any attention at all, then you don't need me to tell you that the regime's security forces in Iran are not exactly respectful of human rights. The head of Iran's Revolutionary Guards warned protesters that Saturday would be their last day of taking to the streets. We will turn up at your door with these very same youth. We will not leave you alone. Know that we will take revenge. As protests have raged in the country, Iran's Revolutionary Guard has used violent and brutal methods to clear the streets. At the same time, there is credible information that that same guard has been working with Russian forces to attack Ukraine with drones. And there is a long and bloody history before that. But all of that is to ask this question. What does that require Canada to do about it here in our country? Last week, a judge made a decision that the federal government has so far refused to make, despite calls from both sides of the political spectrum, as well as human rights advocates. This judge ruled that Iran's Revolutionary Guard is a terrorist entity. Now, what does that mean? What led an Ontario Superior Court judge to rule on the designation of a foreign police force? And what happens now? Those are all questions we'll try to answer. But perhaps the key question is this one. Why was a judge making this decision and not our federal government? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Stuart Bell is a national online journalist for Global News. He specializes in national security and foreign affairs. Hi, Stuart. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Why don't we start uh, with the basics? What is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard? And, you know, historically, what are they known for? Well, the, the Revolutionary Guard was an armed group that was set up after the 1979 uh, revolution in Iran. And its mission was really to defend the new Islamic system of government that was brought into power through that uh, revolution. Mm -hmm. And in particular, to protect it from what they perceive as their both their internal and their external enemies. So uh, within the RG, there's the Basij, which is sort of like a militia that does basic defense and, and also targets opponents of the regime within Iran. And then there's also another faction called the Quds Force, which specializes more in external or foreign activities. And I mean, what they're known for essentially is promoting the, the interests and particularly the ideology of the regime, which is centered around the Ayatollah and his, I guess, what you might call a hardline interpretation of his doctrine and what some really would describe as kind of a paranoid worldview, hmm. one that's really focused on anti-Western ideas and particularly focused on the U.S. and Israel. And of course, if you're going to mention what they're known for historically, we have to say that uh, in 2020, it was the IRGC that shot down a passenger plane departing Tehran, uh, killing 55 Canadians and 30 permanent residents of Canada. So I understand that 
part of the IRGC was designated a terrorist organization, but not the whole thing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the The government has listed um, the Kuds Force branch of the IRGC. The Kuds Force, as I said, is the the arm of the IRGC that engages in external operations, so supporting other violent organizations in the Middle East in particular. Uh, but the IRGC itself is not listed. So you have a situation where one faction of the IRGC uh, has been, in effect, criminalized in Canada, where it's it's illegal to have any dealings with it, but that's not so for the IRGC itself as, as an organization. Over the past couple of months, the world's been watching uh, protests on the streets of Iran almost every day. What sorts of things have we seen and heard from the Guard uh, during those protests? You mentioned they're very dedicated to keeping the regime in power. This is the biggest threat the regime has seen in quite some time now. The IRGC has been demonizing the protesters who've taken to the streets uh, after the death of Masa Amini in September. They've labeled the demonstrators as enemies. The IRGC is really part of this crackdown that's taking place, as well as against the Kurdish minority in the country, we should point out. And together with the Iranian law enforcement uh, forces, the IRGC has been very closely implicated in in all of the brutality we've seen in the last few weeks, extrajudicial killings, torture, disappearances of protesters, some of them children. Uh, So it's, it's absolutely part of this suppression of protests that's taking place at the moment. That suppression of the protests and and especially the human rights abuses have led to, uh, I would say, calls from from around the world for tougher action. And that kind of brings us to what happened in Canada this past week. Can you tell me about the ruling in the Ontario Superior Court? What did the judge decide? Yeah, I mean, it's a very... uh, it's a very particular case. It just it's it's a very basic case in some aspects. It's simply there was a, a lawyer, a Canadian lawyer who worked in Dubai. He's now deceased. A court in Dubai had ordered him to settle an alleged debt with an Iranian aviation company called Soranet. So uh, as as people that are owed money do or in businesses, uh, Soranet went to the Ontario court. To, uh, to try and enforce the debt and get access to his estate. But what's interesting in the larger scale of this case is the judge dismissed it, wouldn't allow Sornet to collect the money in Canada on the grounds that Sornet and its owner were known financiers of the IRGC and that paying them, uh, settling this debt would have violated Canada's anti-terrorism laws. And the ruling found, and this is where it gets complicated and interesting, but not only did the IRGC meet the definition of a terrorist group, but it was essentially already a listed terrorist group in Canada because the Kuds Force was listed. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's kind of thrown a wrench into the whole debate over, you know, what is the IRGC? Is it a terrorist entity? Mm-hmm. Should it be listed when you have a judge's ruling saying it already is listed? What does it mean to be declared a terrorist entity in Canada? Well, the list of terrorist entities is sort of a public way of identifying who Canada considers to be associated with terrorism. And it's not a crime to be on the list, but there are some pretty heavy consequences. I mean, they're really designed to make it more difficult for terrorist groups to operate in Canada. Uh, So 
groups that are on the list, their property can be seized and forfeited. Okay. Uh, financial institutions aren't allowed to deal with their property. And it's illegal to participate or contribute even indirectly to the activities of any of these groups on the list. It's a way that really uh, puts these groups in a corner and makes it almost impossible for them to operate financially or otherwise. Here's my big question. Why is an Ontario uh, Superior Court judge making this decision about such a notable group uh, as the IRGC and not the federal government or CSIS or, you know, whomever uh, should have the authority to make that call. It feels like that's a pretty big decision to be coming from, from a judge in Ontario. Yeah, well, for whatever reason, the Canadian government has not listed the IRGC. So, I mean, this is something that the interpretation of these laws is always, you know, a big question. And and that that's what the judge was forced to do, was to try and interpret the anti-terrorism measures that are in place. But... Why it's not listed, I don't know. Um, the U.S. listed the IRGC in 2019. The U.S. position was that basically the Iranian regime uses the IRGC as a kind of a tool of statecraft that its involvement in terrorism is foundational and institutional, I think are the terms they use. But, you know, Canada has been reluctant to do that. There, there may be good reasons for that. We're, we're not entirely sure what they are. But the, the normal listing process would be for these groups to come up through the intelligence and security services in Canada, the RCMP, or, or CSIS in particular, who would recommend a group for listing, and then it would go to cabinet. But as I said before, the Coots Force has been listed in Canada uh, for the past 10 years, but, uh, but not the IRGC itself. Has the government said anything since uh, this ruling from the judge? Are they going to abide by it? Are they going to make the change? Are they going to fight it? I don't even know how that would work. The government hasn't really responded directly. Uh, the Minister of Public Safety was asked pointedly about this. You know, will you abide by exactly the question you asked? Will you follow the ruling? But didn't really answer directly. Uh, the government's response has been sort of just to list off all the other things that they're doing to, to target the IRGC. So, no, we don't know, you know, exactly. It, it sounded like they didn't intend to follow up on this or, or to adopt it as policy, I guess. Uh, and they seem to feel that the measures they've been putting in place, even in the last few months, there's been a, a ramp up of pressure on the IRGC, but they seem to feel that that's adequate without listing the IRGC itself. In 2007... TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You mentioned that you don't know specifically, and uh, the government hasn't said anything. What motivation might they have for not doing this already, especially since, as you mentioned, the United States has had this for a few years now? 
Well, I'm not a lawyer, but I think it may be because the government views the IRGC as a state military force, hmm. as opposed to, you know, a terrorist organization that, you know, that you might think of as sort of Al-Qaeda, that kind of thing. And so it's, it prefers not to go down the road of including within its list of terrorist entities groups that are arguably the military forces of, of countries. Right. And, you know, there is also... There are provisions within Canadian law that do allow exemptions for uh, state military forces. So it's possible that the government has legal advice from its Justice Department that it's best not to list the IRGC because it's arguably, you know, a military force, as is the Canadian Armed Forces. You know, that's a debatable position, um, given, you know, the RGC's origins, that it's just sort of the, the militia defending a revolution. But for whatever reason, that seems to be the path that the Canadian government's taken. What do we know about the politics of this? Uh, has the government faced calls in the past to include them, um, as you've kind of alluded to? And, and if so, by who? I guess I'm trying to get a sense of... Uh, if everybody's on board with this and the government is the holdout, or if this is, you know, a, a healthy debate uh, taking place in Ottawa. Yeah, I mean, the, the House of Commons itself passed a motion in 2018 uh, calling on the government to list the IRGC. So in that sense, it's kind of nonpartisan. Okay. Uh, but, you know, as you point out, I think terrorist designations are tricky and politically charged. It's also debatable what they accomplish beyond signaling that certain groups are considered terrorists in Canada's books. But on the other hand, you know, it is an important signal. It's important for Canadians and the world to know who we define as those involved in terrorism. And in this case, it's, I guess it's another way of upping the pressure on the IRGC at a time that it's engaged in, uh, you know, an expanded array of atrocities. You know, we've, we've listed out some of the things they've done. They, they, in addition to, you know, the crackdown that they've done within uh, Iran itself, you know, the RGC is basically uh, the financier. They, they do the training of groups that are also quite hostile to Canada's interests, uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Taliban. So, you know, this is obviously an organization that I think the Canadian government have issues with. I think the, the debate is simply what's the best way, you know, to, to pressure Iran and the RGC into changing, reforming their behavior. And is the listing process the right tool to use against that? And I think there are factions within Canada that believe it is. The opposition, uh, Jewish community in particular, has been very vocal on this issue. The government seems to be saying that uh, they haven't said it outright, but we can kind of interpret from their actions that they don't believe this is the correct tool to use in these circumstances. You mentioned uh, the Jewish community has been particularly vocal. There is a large Iranian-Canadian population in this country. Do we know uh, what they feel? I imagine that it could get complicated given uh, impacts this could have on people back home for them. Yeah, I mean, the, the Iranian community is not uh, uniform in any way. It's the same with the Jewish community. But right. there are, you know, there are elements within it that support the listing, particularly those that are more on the anti-regime side. The downing of the passenger plane two years ago was certainly uh, impetus to, to list the IRGC. 
And, uh, you know, whether or not that particular crime is an act of terrorism or or just a sign that the RGC is completely incompetent uh, mm-hmm. is, is another debate. But listing the, an organization, any organization, can sometimes drag in innocent people and uh, and make their lives more complicated. And, you know, that's possible. That's another factor the government's considering as it weighs whether or not this is the right thing to do. The last thing I want to get at, and it's it's one of the reasons we wanted to cover this story, is because there's kind of a larger a larger precedent here. And, and I, I gather from your reporting, you've spoken to some national security experts on this. What do they say about this ruling? And more importantly, what should the criteria be? And is there any, you know, uniform criteria you can apply to groups like this uh, that would help Canada classify uh, terrorist and non-terrorist entities? Yeah, I mean, that's always, it's always a big existential debate, isn't it? Like, who's a terrorist and, and is it a matter of perception? Uh, this, you know, terrorist versus freedom fighter kind of issue. It's actually not that difficult to define a terrorist. It's, you know, a terrorist is somebody who engages in terrorism. So organizations that, that use terrorism as a tactic to advance their goals are, by definition, you know, terrorists. And the criteria that, that spell out what is terrorism is actually quite clear in the law internationally as well as within Canada. So at the same time, I think as we as we said, there there is an element of signaling that goes on when you talk about terrorism. There's political sensitivities and foreign policy uh, priorities that can weigh into it. It is a is a minefield when you go out and and try and label certain organizations. I mean, some are obvious. I mean, Al-Qaeda, that kind of thing. I mean, that's its essence is conducting terrorism mm-hmm. to to get to achieve its goals. But when you branch out into other groups that may be sort of terrorists slash rebels, militias, government, you know, uh, aligned forces. Um, we had the same debate over Hezbollah, frankly, 20 years ago when this is the Christian government at the time, they were reluctant to label Hezbollah, a terrorist entity, they wanted to label only the what they called the the militant or the the terrorist wing of Hezbollah, and you know there was a debate over that at the time, quite similar to this. Um, and they arrived at the conclusion that there was really no way of separating the so-called armed wing of Hezbollah from the larger organization; that they were really inseparable. You know, that's the same debate we're kind of going through right now. Right. Um, Hezbollah is a little different, and they're you know they're not. At least at that time, they weren't so closely aligned with the government. Uh, even now, they're more of an external force. But yeah, I mean, it does raise questions, uh, and it's it's a debate that's probably going to go on forever. You know, who is a terrorist? And in the meantime, I'll finish with just a practical question. Given that the judge has made this ruling, kind of whether or not the federal government has come out and said they'll abide by it or not, does that mean that... Uh, under this precedent, somebody could right now freeze funds that are related to the IRGC. Like, is that allowed to happen as we're speaking? Well, I'm I'm not a lawyer. It's I, I and I can't predict what's going to happen. But I mean, <laughs> right. often what happens in Canada is it's up to individual say, businesses or financial institutions or whoever to make a decision as to whether or not they want to deal with somebody or an organization or somebody that's affiliated with an organization. And I think the tendency is to be overly cautious, probably for good reason. 
say you're a bank and you suspect that somebody's trying to open an account or move money, and that person is uh, you think is associated with a terrorist group, the easiest path is just to say no. So you know this may add additional concerns for institutions like that that may decide they don't want to deal with certain individuals or organizations. But you know, as I say, all, in all of these things, it's a matter of interpretation and. The government puts out these lists and, you know, passes various sanctions and things like that. To a large extent, it's up to institutions and people to decide how they interpret them. Of course. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, the long, the, sh- the short answer is we're just going to have to wait and see. Stuart, thanks for walking us through this. Uh, I know it's complex, but uh, I understand it a bit better now. Thank you very much. Stuart Bell is an online journalist for Global News. That was the big story. I am delighted to announce something I've promised you guys for a while. If you listen to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, or if you would like to, you can now subscribe to The Big Story Plus. What is that? Well, first and foremost, it is an ad-free feed. We know that a lot of you have written into us asking why there are so many commercials on this podcast. And the answer, of course, is because we want to keep our jobs. But there is another way. If you would like to support this podcast directly, you can do so in Apple Podcasts by subscribing for $4.99 a month or just $39.99 for the entire year. You will get every single episode of this podcast with zero ads. You will also get bonus content, whether that's behind-the-scenes stuff or episodes that didn't quite make the cut for the main feed, or some special and, okay, sometimes self-indulgent episodes that the producers won't let me do, like talk about sports or video games. I would love it if you wanted to give it a try, because everybody who supports the podcast directly helps keep us going. That said... I want to make sure that everybody listening here for free understands The Big Story is a Canadian news podcast. We will never put any of our five weekly episodes behind this paywall. We want you guys to hear the stories that we tell, and we'll make sure that you continue to get that for free. Every single day, you just get to listen to ads. But if you would like The Big Story ad-free and a few fun extras thrown in, You can subscribe to The Big Story Plus on Apple Podcasts. That's all I have to say about that. I know some of you have been waiting for this, so please enjoy. You can find The Big Story everywhere, including Apple Podcasts and at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, call us. Leave us a message, 416-935-5935. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.